Howdy, friends. This is Annie Fonte, and you are listening to the Badass Soul Seeking Warrior podcast. On each episode, I chat with a different guest and ask them to share their stories about what they were doing before they decided to redesign their life, what they're doing now, and how they navigated through the challenges and events in their life to get to where they are today. What realizations and transformations did they experience? What fears did they overcome? And ultimately, how did they create a life that they love? Hello, everyone. I'm excited to have a conversation today with my guest. Her name is Erica Carico. She's an award-winning life purpose and business coach for women and men who are ready to transform their lives by creating six-figure businesses while lucratively expressing their own sole purpose. Erica has a BS in psychology, a master's in business management, and 12-plus years in international business leadership experience. Thanks so much, Erica, for carving out some time. I know you have a very full plate. You do a lot of coaching. You have two little ones, and you're juggling a lot of balls each day, so I appreciate your time today. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to jump right in here because you've recently come into creating this uh, six-figure coaching business, but you talk about back when everybody else was getting jobs, you took off backpacking around Europe, and when your friends were getting married and having babies, you were selling everything and moving to Australia, and then age 30 came, and every run around you was getting promoted, and you quit your job and did some more backpacking. And then while most of your friends married a high school, college, or high school or college sweetheart, you married a man from a foreign country. And then in 2016, you heard the words that you had cancer. So I would like for you to take a few minutes to peel back this journey that you were on that got you to where you are today to decide you wanted to stop living by other people's shoulds, woulds, coulds, and doing what you really wanted to do in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, when you put it all together like that, it's like I kind of just relive, you know, those sections of my life. And um, I think for me, I was always somebody who I didn't, I knew I was here to do something big. Like I knew I was here to make a difference in the world. I didn't know how, but I just had that feeling from the time that I was really little, but I had no idea, you know, what I wanted to do career-wise. Um, and I went through college and I thought, well, I'll just, you know, major in psychology because maybe I can go on and be a counselor or whatever, really kind of just going in blind. Um, got the major, came out again, my friends were all getting jobs and I just had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't really feel at them. I thought I'd go to grad school right after, but I just felt like, I don't know, I just kind of needed some time to, to live my life a little bit. And, um, I think I always made decisions that were halfway true to my heart, but also halfway being responsible and feeling like I'm doing the right thing. And until obviously my cancer diagnosis, which we can get to in just a minute. But, um, you know, so I, I took off backpacking. I spent some time in Europe and um, really felt the pressure to come home and get a job. Um, you know, obviously I was getting ready to start supporting myself and whatnot. So came back to the States and I was trying to, again, 
I knew that I wanted to have a different kind of life. Um, and I knew that I wanted to experience and travel and explore, but I also was feeling the societal pressure to make a living, you know, so get a job, get married, have the kids, make a living. And at this point, I think I was 23. So I was actually a little bit behind <laughs> um, a lot of my friends who, you know, were already starting to climb the corporate ladder. They were married, maybe pregnant, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I really struggled. I bounced around quite a lot. And um, I, you know, I, I think between the time that I was 23 and 26, I probably had maybe 10 different jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just trying to find my place. And that pressure you talk about, that societal pressure, was that a narrative you created for yourself or were you hearing that kind of commentary from others outside of yourself? You know, that I've never been asked that question before and it was definitely a commentary that was going on inside my own brain. I never had my parents telling me that I needed to do a certain thing. They always told me you can be whatever you wanna be, do whatever you wanna do, live life how you wanna live life. Um, so yeah, it was definitely coming from my own inner dialogue based on just what I felt, you know, was kind of like the normal life and how you created a, a successful life or a happy life was sort of what I thought. And you eventually went into working in corporate. I did. So I, um, I turned 26 and I was like, right, <laughs> this is enough. Now the pressure was just, it was too strong. I was working up in, at, at the ski school up in Vail, Colorado, and, and I was having a good time, but I really felt like I just needed to start putting some pieces of my puzzle together and doing the responsible thing. So I moved down to Denver and I fell into corporate recruitment, which is kind of ironic because here's me having absolutely zero idea what I want to do. And now I'm going to help <laughs> other people <laughs> find jobs and figure it out. So it's actually quite funny, but I had a lot of success and I actually really enjoyed it. I felt like I was helping people at the same time, you know, even though I was working for a company, it was kind of a good entry level. Um, it was kind of just a good first step for me. And when did you go back to get your master's degree? Because I've, in the research I did for our conversation today, you said, here's some fun facts about me. I spent $50,000 on a degree that I don't use very much. Right. At what point did you decide, or were you encouraged to get this master's degree? Yeah, so, so I, had, let me see, about six years, I want to say, in corporate and in corporate recruitment. I moved from Denver down to Australia um, with my job. So I was working down for a, in Australia with a recruitment company, um, working in sales and marketing, you know, within the financial services industry. So created a lot of success, was traveling all over, had, you know, from the outside looking in just a really incredible life. I was, I was traveling Australia. I was going to Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, Bali, Thailand, earning all this money, um, hanging out with just amazing people and living in Bondi beach. And what people didn't realize is that I was really struggling every single day just to wake up and get myself out of bed and put one foot in front of the other because there was absolutely zero meaning to what I was doing. There's just zero meaning to what I was doing. And I, you know, was doing everything that I could to, to kind of drown out the anxiety that I was feeling and the depression that I was feeling and 
you know, I was drinking wine every night after work. I'd work 12 hour days. I'd go to the gym and I'd like do these spin classes and just try and burn off the stress. And then I'd grab a bottle of wine on the way home, have two glasses at night, go to sleep, wake up the next day and do the same thing over again. And I almost had what I would say, you know, sort of like a, I mean, it was a, a breakdown. Um, I hit this point where I just realized, you know, how did I get here? How did my life become not my own? How how did I feel that I'm here to make a difference in the world? And now I'm just simply earning, you know, millions of dollars for a company that already has millions of dollars. What is the point of my life? And um, that is when I, I actually went to a, a life coach at that point in time. And I quit my job. I left Australia for a year, spent a year backpacking around third world countries. So like India, um, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, China, and then all the way up through Africa as well. And on that trip, I knew that I would never be able to go back to the corporate world. After seeing how so many people live, we did a lot of volunteering on that trip. And I just felt so called to be of service. And I knew that I would never go back to corporate. And a part of me felt like you know, I, after working with that coach, I kind of knew that was the direction I wanted to go. But again, you know, when we came back from this year backpacking trip, everybody was like, well, you, this was, this, this was what people were telling me. You are about ready to get married. I was engaged at the time. Now you're about ready to start a family. You have no business starting your own business. How are you going to support yourself? Where's the money going to come from? So I did what I thought was responsible at the time. And I spent $50,000, took out $50,000 in loans to get a master's degree in nonprofit management so that I could become the executive director of a not-for-profit organization, which okay. I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did, yeah. Let's talk about all this because I think what you brought uh, up earlier in your unpeeling of this, getting to where you are today, is important for the audience. I know it's important for my audience. I'm sure it's important for the people who will be listening on your side as well, is you had this exterior, beautiful life. You were traveling, you were taking clients out to dinner, you were making good money, you were wearing, I'm sure, beautiful clothes and doing interesting things in the world, but on the inside, you felt empty. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do that. And so I'm curious for you, was there a time or was it the whole time where you knew in your gut, this doing what you were doing is not what you were cut out to do. It wasn't what you wanted to do. You didn't have any passion around it. And how did you, why, how or why did you keep tamping down that inner voice? I knew probably about three to five years in, I knew. And I was trying to fix everything externally in my life, thinking that that would ease the discontentment or the restlessness that I felt or the knowing that this isn't what I'm here to do, but I was actually scared to face the reality of what it was that I am here to do. I didn't want to lose the income. I didn't want to stop wearing the nice suits and the high heels. I. Um, you know, I was scared and I was afraid and I knew it meant a whole life overhaul and I just didn't want that to be my reality. And I, I so appreciate you being honest and vulnerable about that because 
what you're basically saying I hear is that you allowed fear to talk you out of doing what you knew you really wanted to do. 100%. Yeah. And am, am I uh, correct in thinking that we're getting close to the time where you were told you had cancer? Because it sounds to me like that was that pivot point in your life. That was that point where you went, okay, enough. Yeah. And yeah. Um, tell us about how that diagnosis came about. Do you think what were some contributing factors to it? If any, I don't know, it might've been a familial thing, but let's talk about how some of that dis-ease might've contributed to getting that diagnosis. So I feel like, you know, kind of looking back when I chose to get that master's degree and when I chose to become the executive director of a not-for-profit organization, I chose to also get married at the time. I chose to have two babies and um, not that I, I didn't want to do that, but again, when you're in the space now, right? So if there was a period of about five years between the time that I was 30 and 35, where I was working full time, I had two small kids, my marriage was really sinking um, because I just felt like, I don't know, I wasn't happy um, anywhere and I wasn't happy doing anything. And I knew that, you know, I was so far off my heart and soul path um, I really didn't know what to do. So again, you know, working for the not-for-profit, it eased my soul for a little while. At least I felt I was making a difference in the world, but I knew that I was still following someone else's path. I was still building somebody else's dream. Um, I, you know, I was still shoving my own message and my purpose and who I was, and I wasn't able to be myself or self-expressed or share my work and my medicine and my love and my light with the world. And I was shoving it all into my body. And I really feel like that my body couldn't handle it anymore. It just, I felt like I was going to burst. And actually about six months leading up to when I was diagnosed, I felt like, this overwhelming sense of, I can't physically live life like this anymore. I just felt like my body was going to absolutely pop. I was, you know, my emotions were all over the place. I wasn't happy in any area of my life. I just felt like I had created my life based on all of these societal expectations and it was nothing like I wanted to be living. And then all of a sudden just wham, you know, you have, you have kidney cancer, you've got surgery and four days. We have no idea what, what we're going to find when we get in there. You may or may not have a kidney left. It may or may not have spread. Um, I was still breastfeeding a baby at the time. I had a toddler and um, yeah, my life just, everything fell apart. That's, that's, that's really interesting because what I hear you saying is no matter what I wore, no matter what I drank, no matter who I married, no matter how many beautiful children I had, no matter where I lived in the world, no matter where I was traveling to, I was still taking my empty self with me. And so none of those external things were the fix that you were kind of looking or that soothing thing that you were looking for. No. Yeah. No. Okay. No. So you get this. So, right. You, you take yourself with you. That's the best way you can say it. Yeah. Yep. No matter where you go, you, you're with you. It's not like you can yeah. leave the parts of you behind that are afraid or unhappy or sad or whatever other emotion that we have. And I think that's important for us, us all to embrace. Once we do, there's a lot of freedom in that. 
It's, it's this, yeah. it, it truly is an inside job. And you, you very intuitively knew inside something wasn't right. Even to the point where I think you told me in a previous conversation, you knew you were going to get cancer. Is that correct? I did. Yeah, I knew. And I actually knew. Yeah. So I kind of knew, um, I knew it was going to be part of my story and I knew it was going to be part of my life path. I didn't know it'd be so early, but in saying that six months leading up to when I started feeling like my body was just about ready to burst and pop. And I knew I couldn't live like this anymore. I had a conversation with my GP at my annual exam appointment and I was asking her, you know, what kind of symptoms do people get when we're going, when we have cancer, I, I don't know. I just, I felt like something was off. And I remember looking at my abdomen area, you know, one day at work coming out of the bathroom and I just, I knew there was something there. I wasn't having symptoms, but I just, I just knew. And so I went in, um, had some blood work done. They did like x-rays and stuff. And they're like, we don't see anything. You're totally fine. You're healthy. No worries. And I just kept having these nightmares and these, I was seeing the word cancer just everywhere and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, I just, I knew that's the only way I can explain it. I just knew. So I went back in, I said, can we please just take a look? I don't know what we need to do, but I just want to see inside. And they um, scheduled a CT exam for me and sure enough found, uh, yeah, the, the big tumor on my kidney. And that's really important too, what you just brought up. When, when one knows, because we do often, it's important to pay attention to that to really be present to that inner voice that's saying something isn't right. Because if you wouldn't have, there's a possibility this could have gone too far and it could have become lethal at some point. Yeah, absolutely. So you, yeah. they, they do the scan, they find that you do have kidney cancer and you go in and you have a surgery. What happened next? I had my surgery and that was not fun, by the way. I, def I have, I, I, they managed to save half of my kidney. So I have half of a kidney on one side, full kidney on the other, but I have, you know, I'll forever have these big, I've got five scars sort of all the way from the front of my stomach, all the way around to the back. Um, but I did not go through chemo and radiation. I just had the surgery and I really decided, you know, there was this point must've been about maybe about a week after my surgery and I couldn't, I was still breastfeeding Molly, my six-year-old who's just sitting over here. She's yeah, six. I was breastfeeding her. And, you know, there was this moment where I couldn't get up out of the chair. She had fallen asleep in my arms. I couldn't get up out of the chair and I was just staring at her. And, you know, um, I remember thinking, you know, this, this moment of just why, why me? And I just burst into tears and it was just this like real moment of just raw, you know, that deep, ugly cry that just comes from your soul. And right. Just, a, you know, a couple seconds afterwards, it was like, I heard something and I, I, I heard it physically say, um, remission, remission. And it was just this like whisper in my ear and I stopped and I had goosebumps and I just kind of like looked there. Obviously there was nobody there, but what it said was remember why you're here. Yeah. And to me remission, I didn't know if that meant my cancer was in remission. I didn't know if I was going to die in six months or a year or five years or 10 years. I didn't know, but what it said to me so clearly was remember why you're here. And from that moment on, I went on this huge journey of complete surrender on my knees, 
what am I supposed to be learning? What am I supposed to be letting go of? And I just stripped my life bare. Um, and I started my business. And how long from that moment with Molly, your little girl, to when you did start your business? I signed up for, I started coaching certification before I could even walk after my surgery. Uh, and I believe that was six months. Um, and then I started my business sort of, I started coaching clients while I was still in the program. So, uh, it was about four months later, three months later that I started coaching clients and within one, let's see, July, July. So within one year, I was fully booked. I had a wait list of clients. I had been published and, um, you know, in enough media platforms, I actually quit my not-for-profit job and moved into my business full-time and I've never looked back. Good for you. And is this, this journey that you went on, this journey of your own transformation, so you could um, tap into your divine gifts to share with others. Uh, did you get another coach? Is this just something you intuitively put one foot in front of the other? Did you do some research of some sort to determine how you're going to kind of put the building blocks to your business together? That's a really good question because I think that's where most people struggle the most is yes. like, well, what is, yeah, what is my purpose or what is a career or business or what is something that's, how do I figure out what is actually aligned with my purpose? And, um, you know, that's sort of what I help people do now is figure out what that is for them so that they can, you know, make these changes without having to go through these huge devastating experiences like I did. But for me, I really like the pieces kind of fell together as I looked backwards, you know, so obviously wanting to major in psychology, I knew I wanted to work with people. I wanted to work with humans. I loved to write. I love to speak. I love speaking. I love being up on stage. I love talking. I love being on podcasts. Um, and when I saw that life coach, when I was really burnt out in Sydney, uh, I think I saw, it was a life coach or a career coach. I can't remember exactly which, which one it was at that point, but I just went through a process with her and I felt like this is encompassing everything that I would absolutely love to do. And at that point, that was when the seed was planted. And I knew that building a coaching business would allow me to use my divine gifts. So to speak, to share stories, I love to write and also to work with people at soul level, you know, and listen, and I can feel their energy and their compassion. So for me, it naturally just came together, but that does not happen for most people. And that is why you, you, you have some courses. You have one where you actually help people find their purpose. And then mm -hmm. you do for those who kind of figured that out, this soul business accelerator, where it's kind of a, a six figure roadmap to establishing their business. And um, you do some one-on-one -on -one coaching and VIP coaching as well. Um, right. I, in, in doing some of the research before we talked today, one of the things that you said, because I think a lot of listeners are like, okay, I, I want to I do that. Um, I, I, but I, just, I, can't, I can't bridge the gap between I want to do it and just doing it. And one of the things you said in, in one of your fun videos that you so generously share with folks is that comparison kills business. That's one thing yes. you said. Second thing you said is you don't have to have a lot of followers on social media to start your business. I think those are two brilliant points. I think those are two points that I would like to kind of um, drill down on a little bit for our audience because comparison, it feels like it's, we as human beings do it all the time. And we're looking at all these people on social media or 
whatever, and we are comparing ourselves to where they are. And then I think there's this, I don't know, I'd like to hear from you. There's this kind of unspoken falsity that unless you have hundreds or thousands of followers, you're never going to be successful in creating a coaching business or a business at all. So can we talk about, let's start with the um, followers on social media. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. I, yeah. So I train and work with a lot of entrepreneurs to help them build their businesses. And the one thing that I see them all do when they're struggling is they're spending all of their time on social media and they think that they have to have, you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers to create a successful business. And in actuality, I teach my clients to get off of social media and to start building your business in a really different way um, based on, you know, human connection and relationships and networking and holding beautiful workshops or events, you know, that kind of thing. But I think um, it's a huge misconception um, that we need to have a ton of followers. You know, I actually, this is something that's really interesting too. So I have quite a few clients who come to me and they're YouTubers or they're influencers on Instagram, and they actually have the hundreds of thousands of followers. And you would think they're earning all this money and have this really successful business, but they come to me because they're earning no money or like $2,000 a month or $3,000 a month, or it's really inconsistent. And you know, what happens is um, I, I just, I can really help them sort of leverage their, their current existing audience. But then I have people who don't even have social media at all. They're not on Instagram, they're not on Facebook and they're not on LinkedIn and they've built a six figure business. So it just goes to show you. And so part of that comparison kills business is to get off social media. So you don't have this constant barrage of things to look at so that you're comparing yourself. And it's, it's really kind of a waste of time because their God-given talents and yours and the next guy and the next gals are all completely different. We all have our own special gift. And I think you call it medicine. What do you call it? Our yeah, original medicine. Original yeah. medicine. And, and the other thing you say that I think is really important is if, if we don't use these gifts in our time, they're lost for all of time. And I don't think right. people sit and think about that very often. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about how do we stop comparing ourselves and how do we allow our gifts to bubble to the surface so we can really use them to serve others? Yeah. So that is one of my favorite ways of looking at it. And it kind of hits home for a lot of people. You know, we all do come to this earth with our gifts duplicated nowhere else. Nobody else has the gifts that you have and, or can use them in the way that you can use them, you know, based on your own story, your own experiences, your challenges, your hurts, your, um, you know, all of those broken points in your life that it's, it's here for a reason. And a, a combination of that, along with your natural strengths and what you just really love to do that equals our original medicine. And so if we don't use that out in the world, um, it's like you said, it's, it's lost to the world for all time. And what comparisonitis does is it drowns out our original medicine because we're so focused on, Ooh, this person over here is doing this and, oh, maybe I should do that. Or, wow, they're doing this and look how amazing that is and working for them. And, oh, maybe I should be doing this because this person talks about this and they say this, and this is what I should say. 
And it actually drowns you out and takes away from your own success because you're not being fully true to who you are and you're not standing in your own full power. And also what it does is it just bring, it breeds that, that, um, lack of confidence and the self-doubt, right? So like, oh, they're so much better than me. Who am I thinking that I'll ever be able to get to that point or ever be able to create something like that? I mean, it just breeds all kinds of negativity. And so I tell my clients to put the blinders on. Do not listen. Do not scroll your social media feed. Do not look at other people's websites. Do not look at what other people are talking about, saying, creating, being, and just really come from right here. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I've learned is we, we oftentimes put a lot of, of energy and leverage into the fact that we think people actually care what we're doing. Right. <laughs> I, just think, I just think they don't, you know, most people don't care if you think your video is good or your hair looked good or you, your content was the best or you have the right number of followers. People are so busy focused on their own challenges of being a human being that they're not spending a whole lot of time caring about what you're up to. So I think that's also another good thing to keep in mind. I want to talk about before we go on to how we scale businesses and whatnot, this, this void that shows up sometimes in our life. It could be a void between a breakup and getting to a place where we're okay. It could be from a business failure to a place where we're okay again a medical diagnosis, as in your case, to a place where you're okay again, a loss of a parent, a child, a friend, a pet, something to where we get okay. And it seems to me that that very uncomfortable place, that void where we can oftentimes find ourselves between an, an event or circumstances and getting to a place where we feel grounded again and okay, can be where people give up, throw their hands in the air, feel disconnected, don't know how to move forward, get stuck, et cetera. What, right. What's your thinking about that void and how to navigate it? Whew. Well, I certainly have found myself in the void numerous times in my life. And in fact, I'm in it again in a certain aspect. I'm in the midst of separating from my husband and navigating what that looks like now for my myself, for him as a, a new family structure. And I feel like I'm really jumping off of a cliff into the unknown. And but what I think is so powerful about the void is, you know, you're you're in that brokenness and and in that that depth of pain and sorrow and grief i think those are the only times when we really truly turn inwards and we do the work that we need to do in order to create the next evolution of ourselves and um and continue on our path yeah and i think all of those events or circumstances show up in our life for a reason because it really reveals where we're not free and where we have the opportunity for growth. And if we can consider them, okay, this is obviously a, a huge opportunity for me to experience a, a level up of growth in my life. If we can view it from that perspective versus, oh, woe is me or a pity party or I'm a victim of something and know that we will on the other side of it, whether it's a day, a week, a month, a year, get to this place of our next level of okayness then it's easier to tolerate the discomfort. Right, absolutely. And I think also allowing, you know, this for me was really big too. I think for me, when I would 
end up in situations like this before, I didn't want to feel that discomfort and I was really afraid of it. And I actually, that's when the drinking would come in, you know, the wine at night or keeping myself constantly busy, um, all the time, just busy, busy, busy. So I didn't have to feel and what I learned this time around and what I'm learning this time around and actually after my cancer diagnosis is the pain, it's not going to kill you, right? It's not going to burn us alive. We actually can feel pain. We're very capable of that and being able to move forward. And so I'm really just conscious now of allowing myself to feel the pain. And I know that it's releasing from my body and it just is going to allow me to move through this that much quicker. And so that's something that I'm just really passionate about now is just allowing ourselves to feel that pain and know that we're going to still be okay. And you're right. We will come out of this. It's not going to be this way forever. Yeah. I, um, I don't know about you and I, I do want to know where you stand on this, but in my viewpoint, failure, which in many cases we've been societally or culturally taught that it's a bad thing. I really think it's an, an amazing thing because it gives us yeah. an opportunity to learn and it gives us an opportunity to look at all the possibilities that exist. So I'm curious what your definition of failure is and what you would consider one of your biggest quote failures in life and yeah. what you learned from it. How did it make you yeah. better? Absolutely. So I used to be a huge, I was terrified of failure. You know, I was definitely like the person who always did everything right, got the best grades in school, you know, was just always that overachiever. And to me, failure was just not an option. And now as an entrepreneur, for anyone who's out there and is an entrepreneur, you know that success lies on the other side of failure, right? So for me, my new motto is fail forward and fail fast. So I can just get that out of the way and get on with, you know, the right um, or, or just get on with the success, but I had to really redefine how I view failure and, and turn it from something that, you know, is assumably negative into, we actually don't fail. The only way that we can fail is if we don't learn something from it. And so, yeah, I've had huge, I mean, for example, uh, it was about a year and a half ago, actually, no, it was about a year ago from now, right when COVID had started and I, redirected what I was going to do with my business because of, and I pivoted and I, I was going to launch something and I ended up bringing out this other program and I kind of just felt like, e, I don't know about this, but I did it anyway. And the whole thing was just a complete nightmare. I had um, 500 people on this webinar that I was holding <laughs> and um, our, our internet, one of the kids like unplugged oh, the internet in the middle of this webinar and there are 500 people and they're just gone. They're, they just disappear. Yeah. So long story short, um, I was able to get back on. There were about half the people there, but then the second time the power goes out again oh, and I'm never able to get back on. And I had a client who was in there and she, I just burst into tears at this point. She said people waited in there for an hour for me to oh come back gosh. and I never came back on. And, um, long story short, it was supposed to be somewhere around a $30,000 launch. I think I made $6,000. I mean, the whole thing was just an absolute, my team at the time who no longer work for me, they scheduled all of my emails that were, you know, sort of like promoting the program that I was, um, promoting at the time after that masterclass to the wrong email list. So they weren't even going to the right people. And I mean, it was, 
I cried for weeks after that, for weeks, for weeks. I don't think I launched anything for like, I don't know, maybe four or five months. Um, but I learned so much from it. And I just, I real, those things happen in business, you know? Yeah. And it sounds like that just wasn't meant to be too many things it lined wasn't. up to say, you know, this is not the program you need to do right now. Because And I didn't trust that. I didn't trust that. Again, I didn't trust that knowing. And so again, you know, success lies on the other side of failure. I now trust those intuitive feelings and I listen to them. Um, and I don't make decisions based on fear. So that, you know, that really taught me a huge valuable lesson in business. And, um, I've, my, after that, my business is absolutely, I think it like tripled, um, after that. I mean, it just went gangbusters because of, yeah. I really started following those intuitive hits and, um, yeah, just, that's what I say. There's, there's no a gift in every experience. If we'll just, if we'll just take the time to get the distance we need, sometimes you don't know it. You didn't know it 10 minutes after all that happened, but you got a little distance right. between it. So one of the things you do is you help people tap into their own divine gifts. And I think, I hope, because for me, it certainly was this past year gave us this unexpected, unplanned for, probably wouldn't have done it on our own, giant timeout. And I said to folks when it started a year ago, that now you get to decide how you're going to come out on the other side of this. And at the time that was two weeks and then two weeks went to six and eight. And, you know, now a year, it looks like we're starting to break out of it for the most part. But what are some of the, the tips you would give folks in really starting to sift through what their divine gifts are? That's a really good question. So, you know, the, 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 our divine gifts are really a combination of what we really love to do and also what we're naturally really good at. And so a lot of times when people get to this part and I'm helping them sort through this, they don't know what either are, you know, we might not even remember what we love to do. I think as adults, we just somehow along the way, we stop focusing on having fun and everything becomes so serious. And it's, it's actually amazing how many people come through my program and they they don't have any idea what they actually love to do anymore. So it's a real journey of self-exploration. And if that's you, for example, and you don't know what you love to do anymore, one of the things that I would always have my clients do is just go back to when you were a child. And, you know, if you can remember your childhood, a lot of people actually can't even remember their childhood based on trauma and whatnot. But if you can remember what, what, how did you spend your time? You know, what, what did, what were you, what were you excited about? What did you, did you play with Barbies or were you outside, you know, in the mud, playing in water, digging in dirt? Um, you know, did you like to read books? Were you always around other kids or were you more solitude? Just really look at how you lived your life as a child and ask somebody. That's the other thing. You can always ask a parent or a grandparent or a spouse or a friend or a best friend or a sibling, someone who knew you back then as well. You know, what did I like to do? What kinds of things did I do when I was little? And the other part is, you know, what are you naturally good at? And this is probably one of the hardest ones. You know, our divine gifts are obviously a like part of what we're really naturally good at. These are hard for us to see because we feel like it just comes so easy to us. It comes easy to us. So we don't feel like it's a gift. We just think it's part of who we are. And so I do think that it's really great to get a couple of outside perspectives on this one too. You know, what do you think I'm just naturally good at? Ask a spouse, again, a partner, a best friend, a sibling, um, a child, a grandparent, whoever. 
Um, and you'll probably find that if you ask, you know, three to five people, you're going to see some patterns and themes in there as well. Yeah, I think that's such good advice, especially when we're looking at ourselves as to what we're good at. I have a friend who is, she could take a wad of toilet paper, wad it up, <laughs> set it on a, a sofa table or something, and it would look like the most you know, accomplished interior designer put this whole thing together. <laughs> divine gift. Right yeah, there. it is her divine <laughs> gift. And she, she, for her, it's just what she does. It's what she does on right. her way from the kitchen to the bedroom. She just plops that thing there and, you know, right. and everybody else walks in and goes, oh my gosh, that is amazing. Where, where'd you get that? Or how'd you come right. up with that idea? So I think you're right. Sometimes we get so used to being, um, good at what we're good at without really embracing the fact that that is a talent that we overlook it. And so I think asking other people those questions, how would you describe me? How would you describe the things I'm good at is a really powerful exercise to go through. So it can help us kind of get reacquainted with that part of ourselves that we've maybe taken for granted or we haven't given the appropriate recognition to because we're just, we're kind of in a, in a rut around it really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, a lot of times, you know, um, you can actually look back as, as also as when you were a child, you know, so I think our divine gifts are closely related to the essence of who we are and, you know, how did you used to feel, um, as a child or, you know, for example, for me, I always was the person who wanted to make people happier to make people's lives better, easier, you know, and that still is how I express the essence of who I am even today. Whereas like when I was a child, if I saw um, another kid at the lunch table who didn't have anyone to sit with, I couldn't handle that. I would have to go and sit with them. Or if I saw someone playing by themselves, I just physically, it hurt my heart and I would go over there and I would play with them, right? So like you can see things like that as you kind of move through your life, but it just takes some reflection to, to be able to point those out. A lot of reflection and also I'm curious because you've been through it. How do you not let fear hold you back? Cool. How do you not let fear hold you back? Fear is the biggest killer of all dreams. And I think, again, it's kind of like that deep pain. We feel it and we don't want to feel it anymore. We, we are just naturally, I mean, biologically we're designed. Fear is designed to keep us alive, mm -hmm. right? So it's a natural human instinct that we're going to feel. The only thing is our bodies in that regard haven't necessarily caught up to the evolution of society. We, we're not going to be killed by a saber-toothed tiger or whatever, right? So we're going to still feel the fear when we're doing something that is out of our comfort zone, out of our safety net, out of our, um, our usual everyday life. It's natural. And I really love to learn to work with it. I use the fear as an excitement and I actually follow the fear. And what I start doing is taking action just one step at a time and just really trusting myself, knowing that um, I can, I can move through this. I can breathe through this. And, you know, in my programs, I have a whole process that I teach. It's five steps for removing fear and limiting beliefs. Um, but it's definitely something that we just need to learn to work with and not allow it to hold us back because again it's not um it's not something that's going to um to kill us <laughs> right yeah i uh i agree with that i my life changed the day i decided to make fear my friend yes because it helps me stay present 
because I know when fear shows up, I get out of alignment and I veer off and I'm in the ditch and I'm in a mess. And it, so I, I always just say, thank you for reminding me I need to go back home. I need to go back and find my center again. And speaking of messes, um, I think it's important to give ourselves the permission to be messy now and then. Our life yes. gets kind of messy and cluttered up and whatnot. And I think it's important to just allow that, that to exist. Doesn't mean it has to exist forever. What do you think about that? I think that being in the mess is one of the best things that we could ever do and allow ourselves to just dig in the dirt and to get messy and to be okay, like get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, that's hard for, for people who are like me, you know, where I always felt like I just needed to have everything together. And again, I was a perfectionist. Everything needed to be perfect. I needed to have everything figured out. And kind of like what you said, my life changed. Well, cancer took that away from me because I, everything was a mess after that, but my life changed when I just surrendered to the mess and I allowed myself to just play with it and to be in it and to know that um, it's actually more fun, I think, to be in the mess than to have everything figured out and lined up, right? Like it takes um, a lot of the joy and the spontaneity out of life. So I'm all about the mess now. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like you said earlier, we lose track as adults of what used to be fun for us. We don't even play anymore. If we think about little kids, little kids just don't care. They go out and they <laughs> jump in mud puddles and they roll in the dirt and they eat bugs and they do all kinds of things because they don't have these layering of no, that's wrong or no, you shouldn't do that or no, 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 yet until hopefully well-intended adults get our hands on them and then we start to put some of those you know well-intended parameters around them but i think yeah it's just like go jump in the mud puddle go roll in the dirt <laughs> let, let your life get a little dirty and messy now and then you who knows what you'll learn from that it might actually be kind of fun as you said a couple more things here uh, we talked about how to kind of find those divine gifts that we have once you have these soul businesses up and going, you, you um, talk to your clients, uh, how, what, what do you suggest they do to scale their business? What's the common thread in scaling or growth of a business? That's a really good question. I think obviously every business is different and it's different for a product-based business or a brick and mortar-based business than it is a service-based business. But I think, you know, what a lot of people try and do is they actually try and scale right from the beginning. And I think, you know, it actually works a lot better if you start a business and think of it as a boutique business and really um, you know, solidify your systems or solidify your process or solidify your services and your offerings, you know, make sure that it's creating the transformation that people are buying that, that for, right. It's creating the transformation. It's getting the results. And from that point on, it's easier to then be able to, to take it bigger, take it to the masses and scale. Um, there obviously is a lot that goes to it, but I think people tend to just forget to build the solid foundation first. Um, and then they try and scale without that in place and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, gosh, you've really covered a lot with us today and I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm curious. And then we'll talk about how people can find you and get in contact with you. What's next for you? What's next for me? Wow. Well, my business is 
hopefully going to uh, hit a million dollars, which is going to be very exciting um, this year. And I am in the mess. I'm actually in the mess, my personal life. You know, I um, am deconstructing everything that I thought that I, I wanted. And I'm allowing myself to be in the void this year and um, really look at, at who I am again and what is the next evolution for me. Good for you. It's a growth year. For sure. It's a growth year. Yes. So for best sure. way to get in touch with you, and I'll put this in the show notes so people can click on the links, but is your website, Instagram, Facebook, is that correct? Yep. So yeah. So my website, there's, um, I'm on Instagram quite a lot. There's a lot of free um, videos with really incredible information on my YouTube. And of course, yeah, you can, um, join any of my programs through my website and, or there's a lot of free resources actually on my website as well. So lots of places you can dive in and, and start doing the work. Yeah. And I want to say to our audience, Erica is very generous in offering free advice and coaching and tips. So take advantage of her YouTube channel and her website, even on her website, she has some great downloads and things that you can take advantage of right away. And as we talked about earlier, she does one-on-one -on -one coaching. She does group coaching. She has uh, programs where you can find your own purpose. There's the Soul Business Accelerator where you take what you already think you have is, as your talent and you can grow it into these six-figure businesses. That's a 90-day program, I think. So there's a lot of ways to work with Erica. And it seems to me, Erica, and I, I like this idea a lot, that you have a 30-minute let's meet and greet. Let's see if it makes sense for us to work together conversation before you take people on. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And yep, so can people can do that for free, a 30 minute consult call or get to know one another call with you. So take advantage of that as well. Use, use um, Erica as a beautiful resource to help you get to what it is you really have a passion about in your life and to determine what those uh, um, original gifts are. And I so appreciate you spending some time with us today. All the best with you as you traverse through these next, I don't know, couple months of uncertain waters that will lead you to some next certain place that will, who knows, maybe launch another program for you. I think you're right. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. All right, everyone, make sure you get to the website and Instagram and YouTube and take advantage of everything that Erica has to offer. Take good care. Talk to everybody soon. That's a wrap on this episode of the Badass Soul Seeking Warrior podcast, where we focus on creating a life that we love. And until we meet again, stay true and be you.